<laughs> we'll hear argument now in number 9659, Keith R. Gallus versus Ira L. Mendel. Mr. Mishkin. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. The issue in this case is whether a plaintiff can maintain an action under Section 16B of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 after ceasing to own any securities of the issuer on whose behalf the action was instituted. Briefly stated, the facts are as follows. The respondent, then a shareholder of Viacom International, Inc., brought this action under Section 16B against the petitioners in January of 1987. In June of 1987, Viacom International was acquired in a merger transaction in which the respondent and other public shareholders of International received in exchange for their shares in International a combination of cash and a small amount of securities in the acquiring corporation, which became the parent company of Viacom International, which in turn became a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, the new parent. The transaction was an arm's length transaction between independent parties. It was approved by a stockholder vote. The petitioners had nothing to do with the merger, either in form or the substance of the merger. But you really don't think that matters anyway. I mean, as far as your, your uh, legal uh, principle that you're urging upon us is, is concerned, that wouldn't make a difference. Justice Scalia, that is, that is correct. I pointed out because in the opinion of the Court of Appeals below, there was some suggestion that there was something suspicious in the timing. In fact, there was nothing suspicious in the timing. Uh, if the Court uh, uh, looks to the record in this case, it is, it is clear, nor has the respondent uh, uh, argued or alleged otherwise, that this merger was uh, begun by a series of events, including a leveraged buyout proposal made by the management long before uh, this suit was filed. Uh, the merger was a culmination of those events. I pointed out simply as a matter of fact. The analysis of this case should begin with a statute. The statute says that an action may be instituted by the issuer or by the owner of any security of the issuer in the name and on behalf of the issuer. The statute does not state that a former owner of an issuer's securities can sue. Indeed, neither the SEC nor the respondent now seem to be saying that a former owner can sue in the first instance. Well, Mr. That Mishkin, in this case, wasn't uh, the plaintiff uh, an owner at the time the suit was initiated? That's correct, uh, just, <coughs> Justice so, O'Connor. So all we have to resolve is whether it's now moot or he's lost standing? What, what is it? Uh, what the court uh, is, uh, must resolve is whether uh, <clears throat> a former shareholder, having commenced an action, loses standing when he ceases to be an owner of the securities of the issuer. Uh, uh, the further contention is made in this case uh, that uh, uh, by the SEC and the respondent uh, that uh, a former shareholder may lose standing in some cases, but somehow not in this case, because in this case the SEC takes the position and the respondent takes the position that because the shareholder, originally a shareholder of the issuer, has wound up a shareholder of the parent corporation, uh, that an exception should be made to the statute uh, to cover that, this particular uh, set of, fair, uh, of affairs. Well, is that, strictly speaking, an exception to the statute? I mean, the language of the statute just says uh, 
an, an, uh, an action, a suit to recover such profit may be instituted by the owner of any security of the issuer. Now, uh, this suit was instituted by an owner of the security, was it not? That's correct, and, and the, that distinction now seems to have become, relatedly in this court, the linchpin of the SEC's position. Uh, in the court below, uh, that was not the distinction on which uh, uh, the SEC or any party relied. Uh, but in any event, uh, if taken literally, if you follow that position literally, what it would mean is that a shareholder can buy stock immediately before bringing an action, which he can now. He can go to the <clears throat> clerk's office, file his complaint, call his broker on the way out of the clerk's office, and thereafter maintain his action and point to the words of the statute that said, may be instituted. Well, wouldn't ordinary principles of mootness come into play there? Here you have a plaintiff who can be said to have a continuing financial interest. I think, Your Honor, the uh, question of mootness might come into play in appropriate cases, but what we're dealing with is a question of statutory construction. It's quite plain that Section 16B does not intend or was not intended by the Congress to go to the full length of the constitutional Article III jurisdiction of this Court. Congress didn't simply say, what we've done is we've created a statute that said somebody can get inside the courthouse door, and whatever happens to him thereafter, we're going to leave up to the courts to decide under constitutional mootness standards. What the statute says is that a shareholder should be a shareholder of the issuer. It was very plain, and the question is that it means to say thereafter anybody can continue suit so long as they maintain, no matter how uh, uh, indirect an interest. For example, uh, suppose that uh, uh, the, the plaintiff in this case was a, uh, a holder of some debt, uh, not a security at all, but a creditor, I suppose, uh, of the parent corporation, or suppose that we had a grandparent corporation, uh, twice removed. Uh, you can pose any number of circumstances, and the question uh, sh uh, that I think that the court should not get itself into is going through the uh, varieties of corporate forms and deciding that under certain circumstances a plaintiff uh, should not lose oh, standing. Mr. Mishkin, the question, in, you're right, the question in this case is whether a shareholder of a parent of a wholly owned subsidiary continues to have standing when he did have standing at the time he instituted the suit. That's the only issue here, isn't it? And what in the statute says he loses standing? Well, Your Honor, I, I think as I was... Uh, uh, <clears throat> You're worried about a lot of other cases, not this one. No, what I, I think I'm saying is that if a shareholder turns around and sells his... For, but he didn't do that. He didn't do that. Uh, uh, if what in the statute def defeats his right to continue an action that was I properly it's, instituted? It's, it's inherently in the concept of a, uh, a Section 16B and a derivative action, because the courts have said in both contexts, in Section 16B and in shareholder derivative actions generally, of which this is a variation, that a shareholder must be a shareholder of the issuer corporation and not a shareholder of some parent or indirect Well, that's what in the 1616B context, the Second Circuit has said that repeatedly. But we've never said that. That's correct. And uh, the statutory uh, language doesn't say that. The, the, uh, uh, the Seventh Circuit has said that, the Ninth Circuit has said this Court has not addressed this issue And the statute previously. doesn't say that. Uh, uh, Your Honor, the, the statute uses the term issuer. Uh, uh, referring is, to the point of instituting the suit. Well, uh, uh, if the, uh, I, I don't think what the Congress intended to do was to uh, state that a shareholder uh, need, uh, his standing may be tested or need be tested only at the instant uh, the uh, suit is filed. That would make of, that, of the standing requirement 
the sort of empty formality that the, the, the SEC claims that our position is. Well, Mr. Mishkin, in, in diversity cases, do we look at diversity of the parties as of the initiation of the lawsuit? And if it disappears later, do we say there's no standing? No, Justice O'Connor, you look at it. Or the amount in controversy cases? No, those are questions that go to when a court's jurisdiction attaches to a lawsuit and it doesn't reinvestigate its jurisdiction as a case proceeds. But this is, as Your Honor's previous question indicated, more analogous to constitutional requirements of mootness or case or controversy where the court does, in fact, examine whether a case continues well, to be a viable case. Well, it's entirely possible that a case filed uh, under this uh, 16B section could later become moot, I suppose. So our question, as Justice Stevens pointed out, is whether this case has mooted out. Well, I think this case is mooted out insofar as the statutory words are concerned. And it is a question of what Congress intended. Uh, we are not maintaining that the plaintiff has not does not have, uh, if it were a question of whether he had constitutional standing, that he would have lost constitutional standing. What our argument is, is that you look at the statute and you determine what it is the statute intended, the sort of interest that a plaintiff would have. And it seems to me that the Commission and the respondent are both saying, look, we recognize that the word instituted doesn't mean that you look at it only at the instant the lawsuit is brought. The SEC, for example, uh, has attempted to engage in rulemaking in this area and to establish distinctions among shareholders who have lost uh, their uh, lost shares. And what the SEC has said that in certain instances, uh, <clears throat> a shareholder who has lost his shares by virtue of a merger continues to have standing, in certain instances doesn't continue to have standing. If the SEC believed that the word instituted was all you needed to look at, then it wouldn't have had to adopt any of such, uh, any of such rules. And it, indeed, in its 1989 uh, rule proposal, where it did include a, a requirement that a shareholder have, mean, have brought the action uh, before a merger resulted in the loss of his shares, corporate, the, the SEC only applied those proposed rules to a merger situation. Didn't apply it to a situation where there was a reverse stock split. Didn't apply it to a situation where a shareholder was confronted with a cash tender offer that would be followed by a back-end merger and said if he tended in the first stage, he wouldn't lose standing. As far as I can understand the Commission's position, he would lose standing. What difference is there between a shareholder who tenders in the first step and a shareholder who accepts the merger price? What difference is there between a shareholder who accepts an exchange offer, which is not exempted by their proposed rule? So I think that the Commission has clearly and implicitly accepted the idea that this statute is not to be looked at the instant the, uh, uh, the plaintiff walks out of the, court, uh, the courthouse after filing his complaint and says, have, had given us some examples of other federal statutes. I'm sure there are a lot of federal statutes that are framed this way. Any person who thus and such may bring suit or suit may be brought by. Which, again, has, a, has an initiation flavor. Uh, well, I think that the Commission actually identified a statute uh, which somehow inexplic inexplicably to me, they cited in, in, in their favor, which indicated uh, the statute provided that a lawsuit could be instituted against a, a certain secretary, secretary of a government agency um, and went on to provide that even if that, uh, the identity of that secretary changed, uh, the action could be maintained. It seems to me that the Congress was recognizing that 
uh, if the word instituted meant you'd, uh, in that instance that you look at, at the uh, lawsuit at the inception of it and forget about what happens thereafter, they would not have adopted any further terminology. I think what the Congress is doing where it uses the word instituted and it, <clears throat> and it, 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 it does so in, in other instances, I think in Section 36B of the Investment Company Act, uh, which the Court had before it in the uh, Daily Income Fund against Fox case, was another such uh, example, although litigation has not arisen under it that raises this question. Uh, is the plaintiff's only motive in a case like this to increase the – increase kind of indirectly and incrementally the value of, of, of his own shares? That was the uh, intention that the Congress had in mind by vesting uh, a plaintiff with standing to uh, bring an action. Uh, and the legislative history makes that clear. There are repeated references to the fact that a, uh, uh, a shareholder or a security owner is given standing to maintain the action because, indeed, uh, the, that shareholder has a financial interest in achieving a result, even if it's an indirect financial interest as a uh, shareholder of the, of, of the company. Uh, so uh, the, the idea that somebody should be a stranger to the corporation and be permitted to proceed simply because uh, he uh, was originally a shareholder and thereafter ceased to be one is foreign to this. But what, what, what's, what's the incentive? Uh, it doesn't seem to me like there would be much incentive to a, a small shareholder. Do, uh, do you get attorney's fees? Uh, the way I think the statute has uh, operated or worked out over the years in practice, most shareholders uh, in, indeed uh, uh, have the interest of their lawyers. I think in this instance we have such a circumstance where uh, in fact, uh, a shareholder brought, uh, brought a lawsuit uh, after the court held that the shareholder had no standing. Uh, he went out at the recommendation or uh, suggestion of his lawyer uh, and bought some notes that, or some junk bonds that happened to be thereafter issued uh, by the uh, then subsidiary in order to maintain standing. How, how, does, the, how does the lawyer benefit if their if statute doesn't provide for attorney's fees? Well, the courts regularly award uh, lawyers, uh, plaintiff's lawyers, attorney's fees in these circumstances. Under the common fund theory? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, clearly, uh, uh, as a practical matter, in most of these cases, the principal interest is that of an attorney, uh, not of a shareholder. But the statute itself, uh, when it was constructed, and it was, it, it is a statute that, that let us all recognize, uh, is a statute that is devoted uh, to certain formal requirements. Uh, <clears throat> this Court has recognized the statute is a strict liability statute, that it sometimes operates harshly, uh, it does, uh, although it is aimed at preventing the misuse of inside information. Uh, in fact, there is no inquiry into whether the defendant uh, did abuse or use inside information. It catches people who are not, in fact, insiders, never have been, such as my clients, in a particular company because they meet a certain statutory threshold that is arbitrarily fixed. Uh, this Court has had a number of occasions to address the inflexibility and artificiality of some of the provisions of this statute. Uh, in the, uh, one of the early cases that the, this Court has had, Blau against Lehman. Uh, Lehman Brothers was regularly trading the securities of a, uh, what I believe was a client of, of Lehman Brothers and a partner, a fairly significant partner of Lehman Brothers, Mr. Thomas, was on the board of, uh, of the issuer company. And the court refused, this court refused to hold that Lehman Brothers as an entity was a director through uh, Mr. Thomas. Uh, uh, that conclusion, uh, I don't think, was self-evident to the bar before this court's uh, reading uh, of the statute. And I think the court took into account that this statute is a uh, is an inflexible uh, statute that imposes uh, requirements that are not necessarily 
uh, going to produce just results to particular defendants or to particular plaintiffs. Uh, similar uh, uh, approaches have been taken by the Court in every case that this Court has had, I believe, uh, <clears throat> involving Section 16b. In the foremost McKesson case that was before this Court, we had a situation, or the Court had a situation, of a shareholder who acquired more than 10 percent of the shares, and the question, uh, and therefore would ordinarily be a statutory insider, and the question is, when do you become an insider? And you can arrange your purchases so that if, for example, you wanted to get 16 percent of the stock, you could do that consistently with the statute to be within the statute or be without the statute. For example, you could acquire up to 9.9 percent and then look for a block of another 8 percent. And if you acquired your 16 or 17 percent that way, when you sold that block, you would have no statutory liability as a result of a decision of this court. Uh, the SEC, I don't think, uh, I think, opposed that result in this court. But the court said, look, we're dealing with a statute that is a very inflexible one. Uh, it imposes rather strict requirements and harsh requirements, sometimes unjust. And we're going to read the words, not in an expansive, not in a broad manner as the SEC there and as the SEC here has contended, but in a rather narrow fashion because we recognize that it sometimes can produce undesirable results. We're going to apply the words Congress wrote in the manner in which Congress intended that they be. This Court thereafter had a case, the Reliance Electric case, uh, in which somebody who did own more than 10 percent of the shares decided he would sell those shares in two pieces rather than one. It's the first piece got him from some 14 percent to 9.8 percent, and he paid his profit back to the corporation on those shares. Then he sold all of the shares and paid no part of the profit back. The issue came to this court as, wasn't that a device? Wasn't that some avoidance scheme? Isn't that wrong? And the court said, you know, uh, under this statute, uh, it, we're going to enforce it the way it was written and uh, let the SEC, who argued to the contrary in that case, uh, do what they should do. If there's a problem with this statute, if there's a hole, we, the court, are not going to tinker with the statute. Go to the proper forum to do so, which is the Congress of the United States. Uh, uh, and so the court, in, in cases thereafter, has also applied uh, a narrow, not a broad construction of the statute. So that, but Mr. Mishkin, isn't it true that all those cases, I'm not sure the words narrow and broad are correct, all those cases gave a very technical, literal reading to the statute. And if we just read this statute literally, it only focuses on the time the case is instituted. Well, I think uh, uh, if you read this statute uh, literally, you also, I mean, look, every statute drawn by Congress requires some degree of interpretation. One of the common characteristics I suppose we have as lawyers is that we read words and recognize uh, that they don't always say uh, the exact, uh, have the exact meaning that uh, one uh, draws from a very strict uh, uh, reading of it. So the word institute has got to be construed in the context in which Congress passed this statute. It was writing against the backdrop of derivative actions. Now, uh, derivative action uh, uh, principles that go back over a century in this court, which has laid down the basic principles. And they, they say that a shareholder, you have to be a shareholder of a corporation to bring an action. Now, that has been construed by state courts and by federal courts as meaning that you need to own your shares throughout the litigation, not that you should only have your shares at the outset. What is the point of the Congress ever adopting such a requirement if it was to be a formality that would be forgotten the moment the plaintiff leaves the clerk's office? Of course the, court had, the, the Congress had in mind a continuing interest, and the SEC has recognized that in its own rulemaking. But I think once you get into the problem of 
under what circumstances do you uh, permit somebody who was formerly a shareholder to uh, continue to uh, assume that position? That is, if he's a shareholder of a parent corporation, he lost his shares involuntarily in a merger, and so on. Then I suggest that what the court is being asked to do is to make policy decisions. And I'm not suggesting that those policy decisions are not real ones. The Commission has been struggling with those policy decisions. And I think the problem with their struggle is that they keep coming up with different rules. I don't know if the Commission has the authority to correct it, but if they do, it's because they're exercising not a judicial function, but a quasi-legislative function. Uh, this is a statute, I think, that has to be given a, a, a strict and a literal interpretation, but in accordance with the common sense with which it is th that, that lies behind the words. Uh, and I don't think that the Congress intended to say, well, instituted is to be, uh, to be <clears throat> applied, uh, and thereafter, who cares whether the plaintiff continues to have any standing? For example, uh, suppose that you have a shareholder that uh, uh, is, is divested of his shares in an all-cash merger. The Commission originally, and in its rules, said, well, we're going to continue standing for such a plaintiff. Uh, they now say, well, if, but we'll do that only if he's sued before the merger, consistently with the literalist reading of the word instituted. Uh, but uh, does that uh, make any, any, any real sense? Uh, <clears throat> the uh, shareholder who was cashed out in a merger, uh, Your Honor, has no real constitutional jurisdiction for that matter. The SEC in his rule would still have continued his standing. Uh, <clears throat> uh, he certainly... Uh, uh, did not represent any body of shareholders. Now, suppose that such a person sought to settle a case. Would the court say, well, you can go settle it, and who cares about the other shareholders? Maybe your lawyer will get, you know, a handsome reward, but you can turn away from this case? No, I think that the, the, the Congress had in mind a shareholder who had a certain relationship, a continuing relationship with the corporation for which he was suing and his co-shareholders. He is, in essence, a fiduciary or a trustee of this cause of action. Well, how, 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 how long would you say he had to keep the shares, as you read the word instituted in this? Throughout the litigation, Your Honor. Throughout the entire course of the litigation. Uh, and uh, uh, there is really, you know, and, and, and Your Honor, if, if there is to be some distinctions made, if we say that a shareholder should continue it throughout the trial and not at some later stage, it seems to me that is a tinkering or a supplementing of the statute and deciding that maybe there are nuances here that ought to be fixed. Maybe there are loopholes that ought to be plugged. But the SEC has been able to address itself to Congress before. And I must say this is a statute that is not only inflexible in its effect on people, but it has been, when it was enacted in 1934, after all, it was the only statute that dealt with the subject of insider trading. Now, I'm not saying that you apply a different interpretive rule because the law has developed in other areas, but I do say, that, and, and this court has said in its, uh, in its adjudications in Section 16b, that uh, there are other remedies that plaintiffs have if there is real uh, insider trading going on. There's 10b-5 that has, uh, uh, that has uh, we, as the court knows, is a post-1934 development, uh, although Section 10b was in the Act. There's Section 14E of the Act and the regulations under that dealing with insider trading and tender offer situations. There's the whole range of insider trading uh, 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 sanctions under the Insider Trading Act, where if you engage in insider, illegal insider trading, you can be subject, in effect, to quadruple penalties. 
uh, so that there is a whole panoply of remedies if we have a case in which a plaintiff is saying, look, I have a real insider trading case. I'm being thrown out of court in technicality. Uh, that's not this case, and I don't think we need to argue it, but the Court has recognized and taken uh, some comfort from the fact that there are other remedies available in true insider trading cases. Uh, insofar as uh, the uh, issue of whether or not, and I think, uh, Justice O'Connor, you had uh, raised this question, whether or not um, a shareholder of a parent or a grandparent corporation has or should continue to have standing, whether he has a sufficient interest to permit uh, that person to sue. The statute uses the term issuer. It doesn't use the term grandparent or parent. And indeed, the term issuer is defined in the 1934 Act in a narrow manner. The term issuer means the issuer of a security or the entity that proposes to issue a security. And that's Viacom International. When Congress saw fit to broaden that definition to include a parent corporation, it knew how to do that. In fact, it did so a year earlier in the 1933 Act where the term issuer was defined for certain purposes as including a parent corporation. That is to say, it was included as including a person in control of an issuer. Well, my question was really whether you thought that under ordinary principles of mootness, it could be said that uh, someone who ends up at the end of the day with stock in the parent can be said to have no financial interest. Uh, uh, I think that that is arguable, uh, Justice O'Connor, but I am not uh, urging that as the rule for this case. Uh, uh, it is the, the, if one goes to the full constitutional sweep of case or controversy, it is conceivable that a shareholder of a parent or a grandparent may have a sufficient interest to withstand constitutional attack. I think that may be a case-by-case -case, uh, review, uh, and, and I'm not uh, here in this court asking for the court to make those distinctions. What I am saying is that the Congress here did not intend to go to the full sweep of the constitutional uh, case or controversy jurisdiction of this court, and nor did it intend to leave to this court's constitutional jurisdiction the question of who had standing and who was a proper plaintiff to commence and proceed with this action. That was a legislative determination made by the Congress. It is not or was not intended to be a determination to be made based on the constitutional authority of the, uh, of the United States courts. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, Congress uh, clearly did not uh, in defining, and it used the word owner of a security of the issuer. And I think you, you've got to take into account all of those words. And uh, the owner of a security of a parent corporation or a grandparent simply does not meet the statutory requirement. Uh, uh, and uh, let, let me address uh, one other point that uh, Mr. Malkman uh, has made that the SEC has not. Uh, Would you be making the same argument if the if the uh, if the <coughs> if the corporation had been merged into uh, the other? If Viacom International had not been, I'm sorry. If if uh, the securities of Viacom International were used in, ex to ex in exchange so that uh, the plaintiff in this case received securities in Viacom International. It was the succeeding corporation, if you will, uh, rather than the subsidiary. I would not be making this argument because the statute would not permit me to make this argument because the shares would then be owned by a shareholder of the issuer, Viacom International. If it was the corporation that resulted from the merger, then the original issuer, in effect, would have been the acquiring company, and I wouldn't have made the argument in the district court, because the this, this statute wouldn't permit me to. 
the statute does make these formal distinctions. It makes it on, in, in, in the uh, question of standing. It makes it in the substantive provisions of the statute. It is a very uh, formal type of statute. Congress, when it enacted it, recognized that there were certain abuses that it was going to attempt to correct, not by leaving it to the courts to make adjudications as to people's intentions or bona fides or malafides. It was going to adopt a... But, but you see, if, if Viacom had been merged into uh, the acquirer, you, you say uh, you wouldn't be making this argument? What I'm saying, Your Honor, is if Viacom were the corporation resulting from the merger, Viacom International... The, the, the issuer for whom uh, no, Mandel Viacom, Viacom is merged into another company. Right. And the succeeding corporation is no longer Viacom International. And Viacom uh, International has disappeared in that merger into yeah. mm-hmm. uh, No, Your Honor, I would not be making the argument. Well, the, the, issue, successor, the issuer is no longer, uh, is no longer in existence. Uh, and the uh, stockholder can't possibly be holding stock in uh, Viacom. Viacom is gone. The question then becomes, who is the issuer? Exactly. Uh, so why uh, wouldn't you be making this? I think the courts have stated uh, that where the issuer has disappeared in the merger into another company, the company that, su- that survives that merger has become the issuer, has succeeded to the rights of the issuer. In other words, this Section 16B cause of action, like other causes of action, <clears throat> survives a merger. We're not contending that the cause of action is gone. The cause of action is there, and it can be asserted by a party withstanding to assert it. I think you've adequately answered the question, Mr. Mishkin. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Mr. Malkman, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, I'm going to proceed in a kind of disorganized manner because I have a couple of things I want to say right at the beginning. The first thing I want to do is ask is answer Mr. Justice White's question. If the ABC company is merged into the XYZ company, the cases are clear that a stockholder, any stockholder of the XYZ company can sue under 16B for a transaction that took place in the stock of the ABC company. Even though, even though the... Uh Stockholders of the XYZ company uh, are holding stock in a company that was never the issuer. That is correct, Your Honor, and there are two, there are decisions to that effect. For example, Newmark v. Well, they may not be right. No, uh, we were in the court of last resort, but I'm trying to answer your question. And the the cases hold that in that situation, the, as I said, any shareholder of the XYZ company could sue on the 16B even though the XYZ company is not the issuer and even though the plaintiff shareholder of the XYZ company never owns stock of the issuer. And uh, your colleague on the other side seems to agree that, uh, that he wouldn't be making an argu- his argument up here if that were the situation. That's the way I heard it, Your Honor. Mm-hmm. Now, the next thing I would like to say out of order, out of sequence, is that my opponent mentioned at least five or more times congressional intent. The the intent of Congress 
Let me back up. The, uh, it is manifest from the face of Section 16B itself that it was the intent of Congress to confer as broad standing uh, upon a plaintiff shareholder who sues uh, under 16B as possible. For example, the Congress said that any owner of a security, not stock, any owner of a security of the issuer could sue under 16B, which is much broader than the ordinary derivative action where one has to own stock of the company in question. Secondly, the Congress provided... Yes, but it doesn't say any owner of any security of a parent of the issuer, which could have been a little broader. If they thought of it, they may have said it, Your Honor. They might have thought it's not that hard to All think right. of, is it? Take a pun. Well, go ahead. never mind. Uh, so as I said, it's palpable that the intent of Congress was to cast standing in as broad a compass as possible. And I gave the, ins I gave the example that Congress didn't confine standing to stock owners. Also, there's no requirement under 16b uh, that the security owner owned the security contemporaneously at the time of the violation. And that is another rule in ordinary derivative actions, which is not the case in 16b. Thirdly, Congress made it clear in 16b that the shareholder is not bound by the business judgment of the issuer not to sue, which of course is not the situation in ordinary derivative actions. So my submission to the court is, it's as if Congress had explicitly written in 16b that we want shareholder standing to be as broad as possible, and further, that if Congress had been presented by this case when it enacted the statute, it would surely have opted for standing. Now, to return to the formal argument, uh, the facts in this case are quite simple. First, the plaintiff owned the stock of the issuer at the time he commenced the 16B action. So did he satisfy the requirement of 16B that he be the owner of any security issuer at the time of institution of, of suit. Secondly, in the merger by which the issuer became the wholly owned subsidiary of another company, that is the parent company, the plaintiff received stock as a result of the merger in the parent company so that the plaintiff has a continuing financial interest uh, to maintain a 16B action in this case. And further, since plaintiff's 16B action had been commenced prior to the merger and was pending at the time of the merger, this case presents the possible danger of a restructuring intentionally designed to defeat Section 16B. Now, 
Well, if a financial interest uh, in the uh, parent company is all you need, uh, uh, I don't suppose, uh, I suppose you'd be making the same argument if he didn't bring you beginning his suit until after the merger. No, I wouldn't, Your Honor, but the uh, financial interest in the parent, financial interest is just one half of the uh, situation, the other half of the situation that he was an owner of, security, of a security of the issue at the issue. Some of your arguments in brief would uh, permit uh, any, uh, any uh, holder of stock in the parent company to sue. I, don't, I certainly don't, uh, didn't intend to apply that. Well, uh, you know, a, a, a double derivative suit? Well, uh, if I may, I'm going to come to that. That's all right. All right. I don't want to be too disorganized. Uh, so, uh, now all the other courts of appeals decisions in this area, and there are only four of them, all involved cash-out mergers, every single one of them, which, which presented a situation where the shareholder of the issuer, who was cashed out, no longer had a continuing financial interest in the 16B suit in question. Moreover, in two of those four courts of appeals decisions, the uh, plaintiff had never been a shareholder of the issuer. So the four other courts of appeals decisions in this area are totally in a posit here. Now, if in this case the issuer had merged into the parent, or the parent had acquired the assets of the issuer, plaintiff 16B standing would be, would have been uh, unimpaired. It is simply ha happenstance, insofar as 16B considerations are concerned, that the issuer uh, became a subsidiary of the parent instead of merging into the parent or instead of its assets being purchased by the parent. Now, I want to come to a kind of distinct point, and that is that the corporate distinction between the issuer and the parent in this case should be disregarded for the purposes of 16b. The issuer, the only asset of the issuer, let me strike that please, the, uh, the only asset of the parent which was formed as a shell corporation to hold the issuer is the issuer. The parent holds and conducts the issuer's business uh, through its wholly owned subsidiary, the issuer. So that the business reality is that the, that the <coughs> issuer's assets belong to the parent, including the issuer's 16B claim against defendants. This court in cases that were cited, are cited in my brief, have held that corporate form may di be disregarded, whereas here it produces an inequitable result, such as the defeat of a statute of public policy, even to the extent of imposing liability upon the parent's shareholders, and even though the parent was organized in good faith and was not a sham. Now, on the point of the double derivative action, This 16B case is maintained not only as a single derivative action, but as a double derivative action, 
whereby the plaintiff enforces derivatively the parent's derivative right to sue on behalf of the issuer under 16b. The commendators, and that's Professor Loss and Professor Blumberg, state that there is no reason why under 16b double derivative actions should be singled out for non-maintainability. That is, there's no good reason why a double derivative action should not be maintainable in the context of 16b. In the double derivative action, the shareholder is enforcing the shareholders, the issuer's right to sue under 16b. That is, the, the shareholder is enforcing the parent's right uh, to sue under 16b, the parent's right as a shareholder of the, uh, of the, uh, the parent's right as a sub, uh, shareholder of the issuer. The Congress, which drafted 16b, would have welcomed the double derivative action if presented with the question. Why does the statute mention the single derivative action uh, explicitly? I mean, if you didn't have to mention the double, presumably you wouldn't mention the single. I mean, the statute just could have said suit to recover may, may be instituted by the issuer and then leave it to a derivative action to, uh, uh, to, to allow the, uh, uh, the single derivative action. Well, if you follow me. Congress felt it necessary not to stop by just saying suit may be instituted by the issuer, which you could have said. In which case, I suppose you, you, you would be here arguing, well, the uh, stockholder of the issuer can sue by way of a derivative action. But Congress didn't think that implication was enough, and therefore it went on to say not only the issuer, but the owner of any security of the issuer. I would have assumed if it wanted to go one step further, it would have repeated that step again, or the owner of any security of the parent of, of an issuer. Uh, Mr. Justice Scalia, when one writes a statute, one can't think of every possible situation. Well, that's my point. They, they, they tried to think of every possible situation. If they had just said the issuer, your case would be a lot easier. They didn't say the issuer. They said the issuer or a but they said owner both. of a security they of the issuer. They said both. They said, they said not only the shareholder of the issuer, but they said the issuer as well. So it's a double-barreled double -barreled, uh, provision. Hmm. I think I have uh, finished. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Malkman. Uh, Mr. Doty, we'll hear now from you. <coughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Securities and Exchange Commission believes that the guiding principle for determining standard under, standing under Section 16B of the Exchange Act resides in the plain language of the statute and in Congress's purpose in enacting Section 16B to create an express private right of action. As to this statute, it is the Commission's position, first, that the plain language of Section 16b directs the maintenance of standing here, as that language is unambiguous in its grant of standing to institute suit to a broad class of security holders. Nothing else in the language of Section 16b or anywhere else in any other provision of the Exchange Act limits that grant of standing or permits a gloss of a continuous ownership requirement on the statute. Mr. Doty, you, you speak just for the SEC here, or you, you speak for the government uh, more generally? Uh, uh, is the government willing to accept that position with respect to all, all statutes that uh, when they say somebody 
can institute suits uh, uh, with, a, with a certain characteristic, they can continue it, whether they re retain that characteristic or not? Justice Scalia, I believe that in the context of this statute, my statement as to the breadth of the grant of standing in this uh, statutory context is one which the government shares. As our brief notes, we in the government recognize that at some point in the determination of an interest in a lawsuit, Article III considerations do arise, but we in the government, in the Solicitor's General Office, uh, share the view that in this case, Plaintiff Mendel's continuing economic interest in the issuer and in the uh, lawsuit which the uh, security in its parent represents is entirely sufficient for purposes of Article III. Well, I'm not talking about the sufficiency of, of I'm not talking about the Article III point. I'm talking about the plain language point you were addressing. Yes. Uh, for example, is the government willing to accept that uh, under the judicial review provision of the Federal Labor Management Relations Act, when it says any person aggrieved by any final order of the authority may institute an action for judicial review? That I, that person, even if the person later does not meet the aggrieved by any final order, requirement, which is somewhat above uh, the Article Three minimum, that person may continue to maintain the suit, nonetheless. Justice Scalia, the Commission would not want to speak for the government in these other contexts. We would not want to purport to be representing their position on these other statutes. But plain language is plain language. Plain language being plain language. Here we rest strongly on the notion, or on the clear language of the statute, that one who institutes the suit need only be a security holder we believe that, this, that the statutory purpose in enacting 16b in this case comports with that reading of the statute. I expect that's a very common statute. I just, I just picked this up while we've been sitting here. I sent for the book and, and just flipped through it and, and came across the Federal Labor Management Relations Act. I suppose one can find scores of statutes that are framed that way. And if it indeed, I, I, I like plain meaning. But if, if, if that is plain meaning, uh, there, there are a lot of statutes that, uh, that, that, that I think may, may have to be interpreted differently from what I've understood to be the practice. Well, Your Honor, let, let me say this. This is a statute which, if the structure and the procedures of the statute are carefully examined, it's quite clear that Congress intended to legislate the elements of a private cause of action, including the procedures whereby a, a security holder went about getting that lawsuit. Um, before the courts. So this is not a case in which Congress has conferred on any private citizen or any con or where the, where the arguable language, the arguable interpretation of the language could be that Congress had uh, intended to confer on any uh, concerned bystander the right to institute suit. But you, you do agree, Mr. Doty, I guess with Mr. Mishkin, uh, with, I mean, with his statement of your position, that it would be enough if the uh, plaintiff had bought a share of stock the day before he filed his lawsuit and sold it the day afterwards, so far as what Congress ex demands in the way of standing. We believe that as statutory standing for the purposes of 16b, Mr. Chief Justice, that is correct. The defendants in this case are arguing that their right of continuous ownership or this gloss of continuous ownership is implicit in the statute. Uh, we think that one does not have, one, one need not look to this uh, implicit gloss in the statute, that the statute's policy is clear that it intended to authorize the instituting of suits by one who was an owner of the security. And Congress and was indifferent to what the plaintiff did with the security after he instituted the suit. I, I think, I think certainly Congress recognized 
that the policing power, the enforcement policy of the statute overcame what Mr. Mishkin has attempted to characterize as a common-sense concern here, that Congress was comfortable with the notion that Article Three concepts of continuing interest in the outcome of litigation and the ability to vigorously advocate uh, a position on behalf of, uh, of a representation undertaken would be sufficient for the purposes of this statute. One must remember Congress was writing against a very dark tapestry of insider trading here in which the purpose was to get these suits brought and litigated. Would you at least concede that in the situation the Chief Justice inquired about, that the, the case has become moot? Justice O'Connor, we can, uh, we can easily see that cases may come before the federal courts. Well, I'm talking about the case where the plaintiff buys a share of stock on day one, files suit on day two, sells it on day three. We think that serious questions of, of an interest in the, in the outcome and mootness would be Just serious addressed, would be addressed there. Yes, Your Honor, but we would, we, the Commission would, would view that case as one which should be addressed by this Court in the, in the full set of circumstances that it presents. One may imagine, for example, uh, instances of fraud. Well, I just wondered what the position of the SEC was. Is it moot or is it not? Justice O'Connor, we do not have a, a position in the abstract on whether that case would necessarily What's be your moved. position as general counsel of the SEC on that question? Uh, Your Honor, I, my own view of this, the statutory standing here is that the statutory standing in that case is clear, that issues would, would be... Has um, it become moot or not become moot when the stock is sold, in your view? It, it is possible that it is not moot. Uh, it is, it is, there are facts which could be, could be uh, developed which would not render that uh, instance uh, one of mootness. We, we would have to presumably um, go through a, a brainstorming session on Article Three standing. Maybe, uh, maybe his aged mother owns a share, and, and whether that would be enough of an interest would, would become a question in every case, and that this is the kind of a statute Congress has written. All you need is the interest they're concerned about at the outset of the suit, and after that, any interest at all that, that possibly meets Article Three standing is going to be enough. I mean, it's possible to write a statute that way, but, but it seems like a very strange statute to me. But, uh, Justice Scalia, Congress has, in fact, made clear that it, in fact, intends to deal with the potential, the possibility for abuse in the misuse of inside information, and that to do that, it has, it has sought to uh, confer standing on security holders to bring the lawsuits. It does not follow, in our view, that, that Congress necessarily was uh, um, blind to the implications of eventual Article III uh, questions of mootness, but this Court resolves those questions frequently, and the cases, even in Justice O'Connor's uh, hypothetical, the, the cases that could arise under this statute, don't necessarily pose questions of mootness that are any more difficult than the questions this Court faces in other federal contexts. The mootness issue does arise from time to time, but in this case, in this case, this plaintiff has no, no difficulty meeting that, that test of, uh, of continuing economic interest. The corporation whose securities he now holds were, was formed for the purpose of this transaction. It engaged in no business activities until it engaged in the financing of this transaction. The issuer has, has uh, been, uh, so far as we can determine from the papers, the sole asset of this uh, corporation. So in many ways, Mendel's interest in 
in the parent is a, an indirect but very strong economic equivalent of the, of the security of the issuer he originally uh, held. We would, we would urge on the court the plain language of, six, of Section 16, but also the purposes for which the statute was originally adopted. And, and the argument which we feel that the defendants here are advancing to the court, which is that on the basis of derivative analogies which we feel do not, act, do not fairly apply, that the court carve out a statutory exception to the ability of a 16B plaintiff to continue to litigate his, clay, his case. We re- respectfully submit that there is nothing in the statute that warrants carving out that exception in this case and on these facts. That the, the time and the place in which the court should consider what the extent of an economic interest is that would satisfy or fail to satisfy Article III considerations or mootness considerations should be reserved for another time. The plaintiff, the defendants, rather, in this case, place great store by derivative, derivative analogies. Their only source for that purported analogy for, for that purported statutory gloss based on the analogy, is to the rules that govern derivative suits. And we respectfully submit that those really are not appropriate here. If one examines the structure, again, of the statute, it is quite clear the derivative analogy simply does not apply. The opening words of Section 16b state that it was adopted for the purpose of preventing the unfair use of information which may have been obtained now, that stands, we would submit, in stark contrast to the compensatory or the indemnificatory natures of derivative actions. Section 16b is manifestly broader. Creditor holders of securities and not merely shareholders can institute these suits. Directors cannot refuse a demand, uh, cannot by refusing demand terminate the suit. Where Congress intended that one hold the security for purposes of being a defendant, it was quite clear in the statute that Congress intended one be a 10% holder of the security both at the time of the purchase and the time of the sale, which are being matched for the purposes of liability. So Congress knew how to address questions of timing of security holdings when it considered that important for granting uh, the requisites of of the uh, statute, when when, uh, invoking the uh, enforcement uh, apparatus of the statute, and they did not do so with the maintenance requirement. Mr. Doty, I I suppose wisdom is is to be welcomed whenever it comes, but but this plain language point did not occur to the Commission when it issued its proposed rules on this area, right? And did not even occur to the Commission when litigating this case below. Am I correct that well, this is the first time before this Court that the Commission is arguing for this interpretation of this well, statute? With all respect, Justice Scalia, we believe our brief to the Second Circuit, in fact, makes the plain language argument, and we believe also that the Second Circuit opinion reaches the right result and contains the right Did to Did it make this plain language argument? I thought your position below was, was much more sweeping than this, that you, uh, uh, that, that it, it did not refer to a current uh, owner. It means it, well, we it, have, and, uh, a present or former owner. Wasn't it, that your it position? Is true. I, I believe it is fair, uh, Your Honor, that we have refined our argument uh, in this court, and we believe that is something which the appellate process permits. Uh, I'll order. accept that. You, you will refine it. On our rules, with, with respect to our rules, however, I would only note that our rules were not an attempt to exhaust the area of standing. They were put out for comment. The fact that we have not adopted a rule on this area, in our view, does not deprive the Commission's position today as to the standing of this plaintiff of any merit or any validity. And we would only leave... Can I ask you how your plain language argument would work if the plaintiff was a shareholder when he gave notice to the... uh, he made a demand 
And then before the 60-day period when the directors have a chance to respond to the land, the merger took place, then he filed suit after the merger took place and was no longer a shareholder. Would he have standing? The, the, our footnote 11 in our brief, Justice Stevens, uh, recognizes the problems with that factual hypothetical. And, and with that situation and with Justice O'Connor's situation, the Commission is principally concerned with questions of whether there have been coercion, fraud, unusual circumstances. My, my, question, my question was, what does your plain language argument do with that hypothetical? Does it come within or without the plain language as you read it? Uh, that, is, that, we believe, is, is a case in which the security holder had, as I understand your hypothetical, he had standing. He Not would have been able to bring the suit, but the merger intervened. Merger intervened between the demand and the filing of the suit. Candidly, Your Honor, we believe that that is an area where the Commission's rulemaking authority could, pro- could provide clarification and certainty and would be entitled to deference by this. You don't know what your point that was. That was, in fact, the, the area of concern addressed by the rule proposals. We pulled back from that because we had not. Are you sure the Commission can, can issue rules as to when suits are bringable in court? Is that an area of com- Commission rulemaking at all? Your Honor, this, this Court has, to, to this General Counsel's knowledge, this Court has not considered that issue. and, and uh, it is, it is clearly one that, uh, that would have to be considered. Thank you, Mr. Doty. The case is submitted.